so it is, therefore, we are not angels from heaven to speak to you, but men whom grace and grace alone has made to differ from you. We rise up in prayerful exultation and cry out together, Hail Mary, full of grace. We need to start with the conviction that nothing on this earth satisfies. I want to know you and the people you serve. Every priest is a kind of a mediator between God and man, bringing God to man and man to God. Send us out to bring glad tidings. Go make disciples. Welcome to Life is Still Worth Living, a podcast of the seminarians of the Diocese of Peoria. Welcome to another episode of Life is Still Worth Living. My name is Jacob Martini. And I am Pat Willie. We're, we're kind of down a Jacob, you know. We, we had one Jacob, we had multiple mics, and if we're picking up a Pat, then that's okay. It's a trade-off. <laughs> I'd say it's a good one. Now, Pat... Uh, I guess we update everyone, you know, we're, we're back at seminary. We're in like the final stretch. Things are kind of winding down. We have some nice weather. I heard it's supposed to rain coming up here. It was kind of like, it was like fifties today, but it was like 81 yesterday. Beautiful weather. Yeah. And even now it's, it warmed up a bit, which is nice. Group of us went out for a run, beautiful country around here. Like I think around here, just like the scenery. I just, I love it. We were going for ice cream yesterday and just seeing that like... The panorama view on the way down 15 is wonderful. Oh, yeah. And sun setting right behind the mountains. Like I, I wish I could have like... I wish I was a better photographer or had like a camera that could try to do it like more justice with just how beautiful and like peaceful kind of like the countryside is out here. But other than that, I mean... We just had installation of lectors. I was installed as an acolyte. A couple of the guys from Arlington were installed deacon, and, and you uh, you went on a trip this past weekend too, right? I did. I, <laughs> I was in Denver for a quick 24-hour trip to be a confirmation sponsor for a cousin out there, so it was a great, great time, beautiful mass. It was actually a first communion and confirmation oh, because cool. Denver has the restored order, meaning that they have baptism, then confirmation, then first communion. So this was the third graders receiving their confirmation and their first communion. Cool. Yeah, one moment was really beautiful. The teacher, their third grade teacher beforehand, was preparing them to make the responses during Mass. And she said, all right, well, today you are joining Jesus's army. So when you are asked the questions of your baptismal creed, I want you to say, I do, like you're, it's a yeah. battle cry. <laughs> so they did in the middle of mass, you know, when they were renewing their baptismal promises, they were like, you know, do you reject sin so as to live in the freedom of the children of God? And they are just belting it out. I do. <laughs> and it was beautiful. I mean, they, they took it to heart. They were very reverent. They were so excited the whole day long. So it was a wonderful celebration. That's exciting. The sacraments. And what, uh, what name did your your cousin choose. He took the name Patrick Ooh. in homage to my my name. So, <laughs> and uh, a great patron there, Saint Patrick. Yeah, we have a lot of Saint Patrick's in our diocese too, as far as like churches go. That's my home parish, is Saint Patrick's. Heck, I think there's one in LaSalle. There's one Washington. in Seneca. <laughs> saint Pat's in Washington. Yep. Yeah, it's great Irish saint, if I do say so myself. And 
course, it's your namesake. So For you sure. do say so yourself. I do indeed. <laughs> but what a great way even like to, to end the octave with like receiving that, those sacraments. Like, right. That's so cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So great weekend overall here at the seminary. Like Jacob yeah. said, we had lector, acolyte, a few guys were ordained deacons. So a lot of sacraments to be had. And uh, yeah, a lot to look forward to in the next couple weeks. My classmates and I are preparing for our own diaconate ordination coming up yeah. on May 21st. How are you guys feeling? Excited? Feeling very of... excited, hopeful, ready to yeah, join Jesus's army. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, renew the, the confirmation, deepen that, that, that I sacrament. Do. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah, That's exciting. Do, so. I'm hoping, you know, in, in the past we've had, um, of course, I guess technically we're in charge of the podcast, so we just have to make it happen. Maybe we get all of you guys on here and do like a little, uh, little Q and A, little talk show type of thing. That'd be great. I look forward to that. Yeah, big and news was I'm I'm a ten on the the scale for both priesthood and celibacy. So <laughs> that that was great. I had a meeting today with my formation advisor. So joyful acceptance. That's, that that is, is good to hear. <laughs> for those who don't know, we we write out forms. You know, we have these like the quantitative side of like we make goals every year. And part of that is this scale of, of how confident we feel uh, in, in Christ's call for, for both celibacy and priesthood. And we meet, of course, with formation advisors to go with that. And it, it is really beautiful like to have some quantitative way to kind of say what's going on interiorly. Uh, when really, when, whenever we meet, it's, are you prepared for this sacrament? Have you been preparing like for the sacrament? Are you doing everything? And you really are kind of in charge of your own formation in that way. You walk with, you know, a formation advisor. Um, if you have a priest, all your whole time here. Uh, but sometimes, if you have one of the lay faculty, for, you have them for the first two years and the priest for the last last four. Uh, but really, to just kind of like we, I know you guys already had your self evals, mm-hmm. uh, but a good time to just kind of reflect on the school year. Um, talk about like highlights that have gone on and yeah, just a good time to collect all those graces as we head into the summer. Absolutely. But speaking of graces and sacraments, we're here to talk about the next one in the joy of Easter uh, as the bridegroom uh, just laid down his life for the bride, the church. Uh, we have, you're here to, to present to us on marriage. I, I am indeed. <laughs> Yeah, right after I pointed out that I am a 10 out of 10 on the celibacy <laughs> scale, I am here to speak about the wonderful sacrament of marriage and the great dignity with which the church recognizes it as a sacrament. And over the centuries, the church has been facing this tension of, of how to uphold the ideal of marriage while still recognizing the, the real challenges of the changing society, and the living experience, the lived experience of people in marriage. And you can kind of look through the whole of Scripture to get an understanding of marriage, of course, the foundations of it in the Bible and the church's tradition. So we'll, we'll cover some of that. We'll also look at some of the ways that the church has been able to respond to some of these challenges in really kind of defining the, the law of marriage, especially through a, a couple documents from um, one from 1880 called Arcanum Divine, that is the hidden wisdom. Mm-hmm. Also, the another document called Casti Canubi from mm-hmm. 1930, and that was all about the joy of chaste wedlock. So words you might not hear as often today, but very much at the heart of what it means 
to be married. And then we'll look finally at the rise of what's known as personalism in understanding Mm -hmm. marriage. And we see that especially around the Second Vatican Council, including Gaudium et Spes in 1965, a document from John Paul II called Familiaris Consortio in 1981, and a document called Amoris Laetitia from Pope Francis in 2016. Amoris Laetitia meaning the joy of love. And before we begin with that that overview uh, of scripture and tradition, the first kind of section there, it's good to understand a couple of those phrases that I just used. So we, we kind of talk about a juridical point of view mm-hmm. and personalism. So when we talk about something that's juridical or another word would be like physicalist, that's focusing more on the what of making up like a valid marriage, like what goes into a marriage itself. So it's more of like this, this physical and legal understanding of the dimensions of marriage. So, which is necessary, right? Because we live in society, we need to know who's married and who's married to, to whom and what that, what that all entails. And it's generally more concerned with, you know, the definitions and the legal language focusing on the physical things like consent. So saying, I do, expressing, giving consent, and then also consummation, that is completing the marital act. So that's the juridical side. And then also the personalist side is very important. And that focuses more on the the who, so to Mm. speak, of marriage. And it centers really on the spouses and their love, their intimacy, and the personal connections that they have with one another. And it's it's not to be understood personalism in this sort of individualism where we're just kind of acting for our own self-interest. Like you might kind of think about like, oh, I'm just doing this for a personal reason. It's, it's more for communion and solidarity with others and especially within the, the spouses themselves and then within the family. Almost like an emphasis on the the person, like exactly. that, that person. <laughs> right. Person. Personal. Personal. So, yeah. So it's all about self-giving, calling the individual out mm. of himself to recognize the good of the person in the other. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So having established that, so juridical personalism, those those two sorts of pieces of the puzzle here are important as we see the development of marriage. And we can kind of do a brief overview of, of the foundations of marriage in the Bible and the church's tradition. We, of course, can go back to the beginning, the marriage of Adam and Eve and the yeah. creation accounts. So and those are a lot of, as, a, as I'm thinking about it, a lot of these are, are an option to be used uh, during the wedding mass. So a lot of times the couples, as they pray, okay, what what readings are we going to use? The church does present like some of the options um, like you said, right? Yeah, pretty much uh, all of these that we're about to say. Yeah, so Genesis one, you know, you see God say male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said, "Be fruitful and multiply." So really, there, those those terms we just talked about, you can see like a juridical emphasis that the reality of needing mm. to be fruitful, and then also Genesis two, we see kind of the other account of creation where God says, "It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him." And so the Lord then builds up woman, that is Eve, out of the side of Adam. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that's where we get that famous line, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. So here you can really see that more personalist emphasis 
where the two are becoming one. There's this mm-hmm. mutual support, really a focus on, on the person at play there. And of course, as the Old Testament progresses, we see a lot of complications in the lived reality of marriage where sin starts to complicate things, right? We see a lot of marriages that are contrary to the design, the design of God. There's polygamy, such as the, the multiple wives that Cain had. We even see divorce and remarriage permitted by Moses in Deuteronomy because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, we see the prophets often using marital imagery in connection with God's covenants, like in, in the book of the prophet Hosea, talking about Israel as a bride. You're good. <laughs> what you didn't see was me move my... I was like turned, I was angled away, I felt bad. <laughs> so moving from the prophets, we then go to Jesus Christ himself, who restores and elevates marriage now to a sacrament. And if you go back to that image of Genesis 2, where the woman was taken from the side of Eve, the woman was taken from the side of Adam, that is, and her name was Eve. So throughout the Gospel of John, we see that it begins and it ends with a wedding. So in John 2, there's the wedding feast at Cana. And also, another wedding, John 19, at Calvary on the cross, where Jesus now, he is seemingly asleep, right? He's dead on the cross from his side. That is the blood and water that pours forth from the pierced side. That's the foundation of this new bride, the church, the water being the sacrament of baptism, the blood being the sacrament of the Eucharist. So there's this beautiful imagery of the new Adam that is Jesus building up the new Eve from his side Mm -hmm. And saying, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, right? The two have become one, that the body of Christ is the church now. And this is even, um, we were talking about this, <laughs> this is what seminarians do. We were talking about this in the rec room the other night. Uh, that idea of the bridegroom was the one who was supposed to provide the wine. So at, at the wedding of Cana, who ends up providing the wine that is better than all the other ones, but Jesus himself. And that is like, if, if you real easily draw that connection uh, to, you know, the, the ending with the marriage, that new wine that is better, that the wine of the new covenant is when we receive the body and blood of Jesus at mass. Like, oh my goodness. There Drawing these lines is always like so cool. Like we, uh, I learned this from my Totus Tuus teammate, Bobby, I uh, have typology parties, but like really like, and now I do it with the sixth grade class at Marquette. They love it. You say typology, they cheer as loud as they want wow. for three seconds, and they respect the three seconds. When, when you make the hand motion to stop, they stop. Uh, but it is so cool to just like really sit sit down, study, pray with, and start to see like these little connections that mm-hmm. like it's it's all just so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thought out, ordered, and and still full of surprises. Right. And that's beauty. <laughs> Order beauty. and surprise. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Miravalli. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked about kind of the the beginning and end of Jesus's public ministry on earth, having that emphasis on marriage. But he, he of course, talked about it, too, as he was was preaching and teaching. And one radical way we see that is in Mark 10, where Jesus said, For the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you the commandment that you could permit divorce, right? But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, let no man separate. 
So then he said, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he emphasizes that this marriage covenant is sacred, that it is lasting for the life of the spouses. So he, he's really returning to the gravity, the beauty, the, the depth of this institution, this natural institution that he then elevates to be a sacrament, right? Because he further makes this seeming challenge possible by his grace in the sacrament. And we see that especially when St. Paul is reflecting on marriage and he says, marriage is a great mystery. And the word there is, is the same as sacrament, a great, mm. a great mystery. And I mean in reference to Christ and the church. So just as we talked about that connection with Adam and Eve and Christ on the cross with the church, the Lord's going to provide the grace we need in a marriage to be faithful, to be fruitful, to be united to one another totally and freely for, for the entire I think I heard life. one of our priests say that too, and we've been kind of maybe in the background been coming up as we talk about sacraments, but that he'd said in order to, um, we need to, as priests, like forming couples uh, as they prepare for marriage, really emphasize that need to like lean into the grace. Like that's, that's how you have the good marriages, really lean into that grace because without Christ in that relationship, it it's going to be difficult. Even with Christ, like it will be difficult. But having Him with you, carrying that yoke with you, uh, is going to make all the difference and make things lighter, make our our burden lighter. Absolutely. Um, just yeah, a beautiful, even married. with all of our sacraments, like yeah, like Holy that Jane. baptismal grace, confirmation, Eucharist, like our, the church. I think that's what we've been doing with a lot with the sacraments is. Lean into the grace that Christ wants to give you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so on these scriptural foundations, we see the church's understanding of marriage really develop. And, and one of the figureheads, one of the, the champions of defining and understanding marriage was St. Augustine, where he said, there are really three goods of marriage. First being the, the good of the generation of life and this radical openness to life, right? So kind of exhibited in, in Genesis 1 above with that be fruitful and multiply. So that's that's the good of children, the first good. The second good is that of faithfulness and exclusivity, which we saw especially in Genesis 2, right, where the two become one flesh, mm. that they're united. And then the third good is the good of permanence and the sacred commitment for life, which we just talked about with that Mark 10 comment, that this is lifelong, that there is the expectation that when you commit, when you consent, you're being faithful to what you say, that I, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life till death do us part. And this, these three goods are, are really foundational. And we'll see kind of a fourth good added as we discuss this a bit here. Um, but we, we can then move to the Council of Trent. So Augustine was around the 300s, 400s. We jump ahead about a thousand years to the Council of Trent which talked about a definition of marriage. And they said, marriage is the conjugal and legitimate union of man and woman, which is to last during life. And we kind of see more of like that juridical emphasis there, this kind of conjugal legitimate union, right? You don't hear too much about the, the kind of the good of the spouses, the, the personal language so much, um, but we'll see that kind of develop over time. And if we jump ahead again now to that first document I had mentioned, Arcanum Divinae, which was from 1880. That was from Pope Leo XIII. And really to contextualize that, he was responding to this new 
um, secular challenge where marriage and divorce were kind of becoming, divorce among marriages was becoming more common in the society as a whole. And also the state was trying to take marriage as purely a secular reality that it, mm. it's not sort of founded in God's will. And Pope Leo really wants to show that it's in the state's and everyone's best interest to have the church regulate and administer marriage as she's done for all these centuries. And he says, quote, with regard to marriage, the church is the best guardian and defender of the human race, especially since marriage has God for its author, foreshadowing of the incarnation of his son. Hmm. And throughout this document, we see that there's only one explicit end of marriage that he mentions, and that's that's propagating of the human race and the raising of progeny for the church. That's really where there's this juridical emphasis, that there there's this emphasis on the need to be open to life, right? To have children. And he locates those other elements we had talked about, those other goods. He doesn't call them ends, but he, he makes them more the category of rights and duties. And he says, it's such as to have such feelings for one another as to cherish always very great mutual love, to be ever faithful to their marriage vow, and to give one another an unfailing and unselfish help. And there you can kind of see these, these hints of that personalism language, especially when he goes on to say, marriage is the most fruitful source of individual benefit and of public welfare. And he says, not only was marriage instituted for the propagation of the human race, but also that the lives of husbands and wives might be made better and happier. And how, how would that happen? He, he gives four ways. It's by lightening each other's burdens. It's by a constant and faithful love by having their possessions in common, in common, and especially by the heavenly grace flowing from the sacrament. And, and he really goes on to say that these fruits are only produced when holiness, unity, and indissolubility are at the foundation of the marriage. And, and he really, he's kind of lamenting here, right? This certain destruction of society that seems to be sort of on the horizon as, as he sees this growing commonality and, and permittance of divorce. So he, he emphasizes that couples who are married should cultivate the virtue of religion, that is the practice of their faith, to ensure a, quote, calm and quiet constancy in marriage. He understands that faith forms families. So following that, so that was Cassie Canubi, or sorry, that was Arcanum Divine, Pope Leo XIII, 1880. We go on to Pius XI, 50 years later, on the 50-year anniversary of that first document, he gave uh, another document called Casti Canubi, which he said with the first line, how great is the dignity of chaste wedlock, that is, marriage. And this is in response especially to this Anglican conference. It's called the Anglican Lambeth Conference, where they decided to permit, to allow married couples to use contraception. And it was really the first of the main Christian traditions to sort of break with that 1900-year tradition of not permitting contraception because you end up lying with your body, right? You're saying to your spouse, I'm giving you everything, but then by placing some sort of birth control or, or condom in the way, you're lying with your body. You're saying, I'm giving you totally, except I'm not because I'm, I'm restricting the, t the total self-gift. And this was kind of a, a Pandora's box 
that Lambeth conference decision because it called into question the use of contraception across the larger society. So he's trying to navigate these, these muddied waters. And how does he do it? Well, he structures this whole document around those three goods or blessings of marriage from St. Augustine. So blessing number one, the good of offspring. Second, the, the conjugal faith. And third, the dignity, the beauty of the sacrament. And he says, blessing number one, among the blessings of marriage, the child holds the first place. So he continues that emphasis that, that parents indeed have a, a great responsibility in, in raising children, and especially that these children would be faithful members of the church. He also speaks about this blessing of the conjugal faith, where there's this mutual molding of husband and wife, right? This determined effort to perfect each other. And he says that this is the chief reason and purpose of matrimony. So we see a kind of a shift there where he says uh, marriage is, is kind of to be viewed beyond a restricted sense as instituted for the proper conception and education of the children, but more widely as this blending of life as a whole in the mutual interchange thereof. So that really opens the door to this greater emphasis on the more personalist dimension. So if we jump ahead then to the next document, right? So there, Pius XI, Pius 1930, he was responding to challenges while still upholding the, that kind of juridical emphasis but laying the groundwork for, for a coming shift to this more personalist understanding. We'll, we'll see how the personalist understanding now really rises. It comes to the fore with Gaudium et Spes at the Second Vatican Council. And personalism really kind of underlies the whole of the Second Vatican Council. And one key text is that from Gaudium et Spes, which says, Man can fully discover his true self only in a sincere giving of himself only by a sincere gift of self. And then we see marriage specifically talked about in Gaudium et Spes 48, where it says, the intimate partnership of married life and love has been established by the creator and qualified by his laws. It's rooted in the conjugal covenant of irrevocable personal consent. So it goes beyond this language of like rights over the body, that this desire strictly or, or primarily for the reproduction of children, and it makes it this intimate partnership of life and love. So it's seeking to affirm both the juridical and personal, personalist dimensions without showing this sort of hierarchy of, of goods, of ends, right? So it just kind of expresses all these different goods. And we see in, in John Paul II's document, Familiaris Consortio from, from 1981, this emphasis on the totality and self-gift of marriage, where there's this total physical self-giving, but that would become a lie if it were not the sign and the fruit of a total personal self-giving too, in which the whole person is present. So he wants it to be complete self-gift, right? And that goes back to even the foundation of sacraments themselves, these real signs of like, again, I back with baptism, we use water as the example. Water, which naturally gives life, uh, refreshes, cleans. Uh, now in a sacramental sense, is a real sacrament because it does that to our souls. You know, with baptism, we're, we're forgiven of our sins. We're made part of the body of Christ. Um, and, and in the truest sense, the human person, as, as this, these documents are saying, our, our bodies are true enactments of our souls. So if, if I'm saying one thing with my body that I'm not like meaning, like, we need to kind of be integrated that way. 
what I do with my body is what I should be wanting to intend um, to show acts of affection, even like between friends, getting a gift for family members, if that's the way they receive love. Right. Uh, and the, the other different love languages. Absolutely. So one final document to point out here is Amoris Laetitia from, John, or from Pope Francis, where he recognizes all these tensions, right? He, he says, we need to kind of navigate these waters and emphasize the concrete realities of marriage, the spirit's role in history, and the need for a proper understanding of per- personalism. And he's really calling for humility, realism, and self-criticism in our theology of marriage, how we live this out, upholding the, the dignity, the truth of all of the teachings, but still being able to pastorally care for the people in marriages, the people who have been affected by divorce, the people who are struggling within their marriages, whatever it may be. And he says, marriage should be presented more as a dynamic path to personal development and fulfillment than as a lifelong burden, right? Marriage should not just be this, this total burden, right? It's a vocation. It's a, it's a calling for the whole family to look to Christ. And there's really an emphasis on the family of a whole, as a whole. And that was, that was a document or a statement from John Paul II, where he said, the future of humanity passes by way of the family. So in conclusion here, we've, we've talked a lot about a couple different elements, right? Physical, juridical, those go hand in hand, and this personalist view of marriage. And we've seen how the, ch- the church has really kind of navigated the changing tides of society, wrestling with this tension to uphold the ideal of marriage while recognizing the challenges of the societal situation and the lived reality of marriage. We see that those basic statements from Genesis 1 and 2, from Mark chapter 10, from Ephesians 5, those remain constant. They're present in all of these different documents. Um, But the way that the church is expressing these things has taken on more of a, a personalist understanding, where there's this emphasis on the people within the marriage, that that there's beyond just sort of the legal language of it. And we recognize this continued dignity of marriage, and um, we can especially reflect on the fact that the Bible itself begins and ends with these wedding scenes, right? So we talked about Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, but also the very end, Revelation, where Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, are in um, this constant wedding feast. And we'll close with that as as a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder, crying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for coming on here. Uh, Ironically, we're going to be going to prayer very soon. So, uh, yeah, shout outs. Um, Would you have... Shout out to Joseph James Patrick Damore, recently confirmed, received his first communion. (laughs) 
and I think I'll probably speak for both of us, but really shout out to all of those holy marriages that we see in our lives. Uh, most especially, you know, the ones that I see most frequently, my parents uh, and then my grandparents as well, uh, really exemplifying what it means to serve the other and show love and mutual affection for each other. Even if it means my dad watches a lot of Judge Judy. I hope he laughs when he hears this. He's really got the juridical part down. <laughs> and then, of go. course, shout out to Ryan Mann. Ryan Mann, we're praying for you, man. Hopefully you get on. Praying for you, man, man. Got it. Yep. Uh, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and pray for holy marriages. And as always, thank you and God love you.